hangman, slack your line, slack it just a while, for I think I see my papa coming, traveling many a mile, traveling many a mile. Welcome to Not in Her Own House, season two of Reading Shirley Jackson, the podcast. This season, join us as we explore the world of Jackson's second novel, Hangs a Man. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to season two of the Reading Shirley Jackson podcast. We have two updates today. Uh, The first is that, obviously, if you're listening to this episode, you know it's a week late. And that's because we had a vacation, which means vacation from everything. The second update is that we decided to have a slightly shorter episode uh, today. And so instead of going to 116 as planned, we're going to be going to 108. And then for next week, we'll read 108 to 136. Because I messed up. Kelly did mess up, but... I didn't do the reading. Sorry. She also I went does, to 108. She does all the editing and all the transcripts. So you know what? We forgive her. Yeah. And I'm still... I am woefully behind in everything. But that's academia. You're never not going to be woefully behind. Also... Um, Since we just got back from Thanksgiving break and are heading into Christmas break, if you are in academia, please listen to me carefully. You're not going to work at your parents' house. You can't work at your parents' house. It just, it's not going to happen. Would you concur? I work at my in-law's house, but not at my parents' house. Why? Because my parents talk all day Mm -hmm. and my in-laws do not. Well, and also my father-in-law is also an academic so he is often also working during the day. Yeah. So like often we are in the living room working and then Alan and his mom are in the kitchen talking uh-huh. or Alan is watching soccer. And so we're all just kind of doing our own stuff. Yeah. I can't work at my parents' house. I just, I just can't. I think part of it is because all my books are here in Connecticut, but also just, I go back there. And since I lived at home through college, I think, you know, how did I ever pass a single goddamn class? <laughs> anyway, um, moving on into the world of Hangs a Man, how is the life of Bergen? That's not the world of Hangs a Man. Okay, well, the the, the world of Bergen. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. It's been a tough semester. I shan't lie to, yeah. our, to our loyal <laughs> listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, they come and they go. So uh, we have our Christmas tree, which is really nice. I love um, the holiday season. And our English Graduate Student Association just hosted a used book sale yesterday, which was genuinely like the happiest I've ever been. Like it was just so fun. It was just so fun. Like we got to sort all the books. We got to talk to people. And I know owning a bookstore is like a cliche thing for a person who likes to read to want. Mm. And I would have never said that before, like as anything kind of particular to me, but I actually think I would be so happy. <laughs> like, Yeah. But think about it. Like these customers are people that largely you knew or you knew of them. Okay. But here's my thing. If I owned the bookstore, I could, could throw people out. I literally would have no qualms of being like, actually, you cannot speak to me that way in my business please leave. I do not want your business. Like, Mm. and I could stand up for my employees too. I'd be like, actually don't speak to her that way. You may leave. Can you tell the people what your old job was for a night? For a night? Oh yes. I told Kelly this. She said it was very funny. So when I was 18, I was a hostess at a restaurant that turned into a club. So it was like, there was an upscale restaurant upstairs. There was a casual restaurant downstairs that was outside. And then the outside area turned into like a club slash dance floor. 
And I was 18 and I was work. I usually worked until 10 o'clock when the diners left and the dancers started coming. And, um, my boss Javier was like, actually, like, I need you to stay tonight. You're going to be the bouncer and you're going to check IDs. So literally I couldn't drink, but I was checking. I, I remember I would not even look at the ID cause I was so nervous. Uh-huh. I would literally just like my eyes would fuzz over and I'd be like, okay, thank you. So like the worst bouncer ever. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that happened was three people. So this is like another backstory about me. I played the the guitar in my jazz band in high school. Yeah, I was really bad, especially in my freshman year, like really horrible. And for boys that play musical instruments, they always also play the guitar. Yeah. And so they were so mean to me and so mad at me all the time. At one point, this one kid who played the saxophone, like was like, can I play your guitar at the end of band? Uh And and just played it for 10 minutes. And I just had to stand there and like watch him play it. And I was like, a power move. I was like, I need to go to class, Kyle. Of course, his name was fucking Kyle. And then, so back to my bouncer story, three of those people. Kyle showed up. Showed up. And I was like, can I see your ID? Even though they were obviously like years older than me. So they would have. You should have told them it was fake. I should really should have sent them away. I'm like, we don't want your business here. Um, but I have always been a people pleaser. So I was like, thank you. It's nice to see you. Kyle. Did Kyle have a popped collar? He was like jazzy. Like he liked jazz. So he was like too cool for school. Could you see both of his eyes or only one? Both. He had like, he had, <laughs> he had upward hair, not downward hair. <laughs> but yeah, I was a saxophone player, a bass, an upright bass player, and the drummer. The drummer was so mean to me and he was a sophomore so I had to be with him for like three more years my dad was a drummer well yeah and actually my dad was a bouncer and a bartender that's how my parents met anyway this has indeed been a rough semester um as I watch Mackenzie try to wrestle biscuit out from under the tree uh but you know what semesters end and then another one starts and then another one ends and then it starts and then it ends and then you die so um I'm very much looking forward to that being my life So I see you do have a content warning here in the show notes, but because I failed as a reader um, and we're not doing the last eight pages, do we still need the content warning? Well, so the content warning is for self-harm. Natalie is not doing well in certain moments, as we'll see. I think the major content warning um, is actually for Elizabeth for the next section, but we'll kind of keep it in there just in case as as a lot of our future episodes will um, contain that. So again, just prepping you for what we are. Um, we are also going to be talking about the rape today. So just as always, those are kind of um, in the air during all these podcasts. So just kind of be aware of that. And again, take care of yourself as needed. Um, we're going to start today with a letter from Natalie's father. And we'll see that there's like even more kind of letters and like different kinds of documents as we move forward. Um, and we can think about the role of letters and of other forms of communication in Shirley Jackson generally. So Kelly, can you read us the first part of that letter, please? Natalie, my child. No, indeed, I do not read Shakespeare anymore. I have passed the age when such things are felt to be essential and have reached the age when half a dozen esoteric quotations are all I ever need. Those, that is, and a concordance for any unexpected crisis. I feel very strongly the pull of the middle-aged personality when a ball game in the evening paper or the food of love which reminds me that your mother has had a cold and I must see here is a quotation, but I fear a rather unusual one. I must trouble you. I say once more for congratulations. 
Some odd little magazine has done me an odd little honor. My own modest way of rephrasing a particular request from them for a series of articles. So you may, if your mother permits, have a new coat this winter. All right. What do you think? Well, first of all, fuck this guy. Um, it's going to get worse. Uh, but I, before I get into the guts of the letter, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what you were saying about the role of letters in text. I have not read all of Jackson, as you know. When we finish Hangs a Man, I will still have Come Along With Me and The Road Through the Wall. But the other books that I've read do not have letters in them. Um, but interestingly, I think I'm remembering correctly. If I got it wrong, I'll edit it out. Samuel Richardson, the, the writer whose book Dr. Montague reads, who Shirley really loved, he did a lot of epistolary stuff. I think that's right, yeah. Um, and the other interesting thing is, I mentioned this before, but um, I think by this point, Shirley had always been a big letter writer, but she had yes. actively told her parents in particular to preserve her letters yes. for future biographers. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can think about that as well as this is obviously a very autobiographical novel. We can kind of debate how autobiographical, but I think that's important too, is Natalie's thinking about becoming a writer and thinking about what it means to be a body, what it means to be a self. And so how do these letters play into that development of herself from the outside, mm -hmm. which is part of that like fragmentation that's becoming even clearer as we move forward throughout the novel, that she does have these different selves that are almost like moving further away from each other, I think. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna see a lot of that fragmentation. And in fact, the next novel, which is The Bird's Nest, um, is totally fragmented. And as I say that, I realize The Bird's Nest may have letters in it. I'll check, and if it does, I'll edit that out. Um, anyway, so yeah, so Mr. Waite writing to his daughter, he doesn't read Shakespeare anymore. Um, and the thing that strikes me as I read this out loud is he's obviously, doing a victory lap, right? He's been asked to write a series of articles, but the way that he phrases it is so buried. I must trouble you. I say once more for congratulations, odd little magazine, odd little honor. It's just this horrible, twisty, convoluted sentence. The upshot of which is, hey, I have a publication. Good for me. I think what's funny about the phrasing that you noted is that he also is noting it, yeah. right? So my own modest way of rephrasing a particular request. So there's like these layers and layers, meta narrative, but about just like a regular guy. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like he doesn't need it. I, I have a hot take coming. Yeah. I also don't read Shakespeare hmm. and probably won't. Like, I think like once you've read Shakespeare, you should see it performed. Like you don't need to reread it. So that's my hot take. I don't think that's that hot a take. I mean, I, I, I think Shakespeare obviously has his place and we owe him pretty much everything. But yeah, I'm actually not all that familiar with Shakespeare. Macbeth, I know inside and out um, because of something that is very dear to me, which is soon to be departed. Um, I'm relatively familiar with Hamlet, um, relatively with Romeo and Juliet. And outside that, I don't know a damn thing. <laughs> I love Shakespeare. Like I, like Shakespeare was my focus in college. It's what I wanted to do when I was acting. Like I really wanted to be in a Shakespeare troupe. Mm -hmm. I just think, like, I'm never going to read Romeo and Juliet again. I'll go see it. Mm. But I just won't read it. Like, I know it. You know what I mean? Mm. I think what's cool about it is the way that we keep reinventing it. But I'm with uh, Mr. Wade on this one. Like, I probably wouldn't read it anymore either. All right. Um, we learned that Natalie has uh, been hyping up Arthur Langdon. Mr. Wade goes on in the letter to write. 
I admire Mr. Langdon. Arthur Langdon, did you say? His name is familiar. Ask him if he has ever published. I seem to recollect a series of poems in an arty journal, but perhaps now that he is an associate professor, he would prefer to forget them. You do not say much about Mrs. Langdon, except that she used to be one of his students. Is that the only unusual fact about her? Walk not in the sun, my Natalie, nor reproach your father hereafter for his unlearning. Forgive also the fact that this letter is so short. I am taking time from my writing to keep in touch with you. Your letters are, believe me, a very bright center in my life. I sent you to college to enjoy yourself, not to get an education. But my dear, please hereafter, do try to split infinitives, and this is a parenthetical, to enthusiastically admire Mr. Langdon indeed. We neither of us thank you. So I think what's interesting is that Mr. L Mr. Waite and Arthur both have like the opposite ways of maintaining their own sense of superiority. Hmm. So Arthur is like, this is my interpretation, is like Natalie's dad is so beneath me that I'll I'll say I recognize him because mm. oh, like her, she would be hurt if I didn't recognize her dad. Oh, I read it the other way. Really? I thought it was like that's sort of exposing him as a fraud. And he's like, oh, yes, yes, of course. That guy whose stuff I've definitely read. You have to do that a lot in academia. No, I interpret it as like this – uh, 18-year-old clearly thinks her father is more important than he is. So I'm going to be like, yes, of course. He's. I read that what that one article, didn't we? Yeah, it and works then, both ways. Yeah, and then, I mean, Mr. Waite is being like, oh, I've never heard of him. Uh, maybe a poem, uh, but yeah. I'm sure I'd rather forget them. Yes, yeah. So Mr. Waite is sort of shitting on art journals. And so we can see the way that Shirley is interpreting academics as constantly having to negotiate and reestablish their own authority. Mm -hmm in ways that can never actually build off of other people's expertise or kind of accomplishments. It always has to be antagonistic. Hmm. Um, Kelly, can you read that last paragraph, which you have, I know, particular angst about? <laughs> this is really galling. Your mother insists that I inquire about your health. I tell her that it is no longer our affair, but she feels that maternal instinct is evidenced by a scrupulous investigation of your, your internal workings. Do you have any trouble with your eyes, she wants to know? your chest, your feet. Be sure, she says, to keep handy a bottle of cough medicine in the event of that nasty cough you used to have at night, ellipsis, when you were three. Do you want to hear something I noticed while you were reading it that yeah. I noticed when I was reading it? There's like, she does like funny wordplay. What do you mean? So your mother insists that I inquire that maternal interest is evidenced by a scrupulous investigation of your internal workings. And, Damn. Then, she, and then she goes, do you have any trouble with your eyes? Isn't that cool? <laughs> that is really But cool. I wouldn't have heard it because I you don't you read eyes as the thing and you don't hear it as the letter. Damn. So I guess my my question is is this is this Shirley having fun? Hmm. Or is this Mr. Waite having fun? We're a great team because I never would have noticed that, first <laughs> of all. Um I don't know if it's Mr. Waite having fun, but you know, this type of wordplay does strike me as particularly Shakespearean. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. I forget which play it's from. Um, you might remember better than I do, but um, one of Shakespeare's most famous sex jokes is he's uh, somebody's reading a letter and they recognize the handwriting. Um, it's her C's, her U's, and her T's. Is that much ado? It might be, but um, 
So obviously when you read it out loud, it sounds different than when you read it on the page. Um, so that's probably Shakespeare's most famous joke. And so Shirley is really imitating that here. And I think if we look at all the layers of that, how brilliant is that? Because he starts the letter going out of his way saying, I don't really read Shakespeare. Yeah. And then he does this thing. And what are we supposed to think that like you're the first guy who ever thought to do that? Come on, man. Anyway, so I, I do think that this is one of those small paragraphs, wordplay aside, that Shirley is doing an awful lot. Your mother insists that I inquire about your health, even though I tell her it's no longer our affair. Really? Really? Like he, he starts the letter talking about himself and then he says, oh yeah, your mom says I have to ask you how you're doing, even though it's no longer my problem. What do you think about that? I mean, it's just like obviously mean. My only, not like caveat, but like, is that his way of being like, you're an adult hmm. in a way that she will like, you know yeah. what I mean? Does he like know that about her? Hmm. And again, I think the 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 body parts he chooses are really interesting. Yes. So having trouble with your eyes, uh -huh. how are you perceiving and being perceived? Your chest, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. And your feet, where are you going? So uh -huh. it's like this cool kind of... I don't know, again, this like nice little moment yeah. couched within parental neglect. <laughs> and there's also something sort of bizarrely gynecological about it. Yeah. Um, she feels that maternal interest is evidenced by a scrupulous investigation of your internal workings. Uh, that That is just so gross. And when, of course, we also know that they actually don't care about her internal workings. Like, yeah. they don't care how she's feeling or that her body is being protected. Mm. Yeah, it's too late for them to care about her internal workings. But I think it's also, it's very out of touch, but it's also kind of sweet um, when he's essentially transcribing the things his wife wants her to ask him to ask about. Keep a bottle of cough medicine in the event of that nasty cough you used to have at night when you were three. So it's like, I do remember all those moments. I, I just think it's very um true of a mother yeah like you know when you were three you threw up when you ate that food so maybe now at 30 you shouldn't eat it yeah um but also it is a great way of showing how incredibly out of touch mrs wade is yeah um i'm concerned about this thing that happened when my kid was three yeah and she's 18 now so kelly once we move on from the letter um we get another kind of peek into some of Natalie's internal thinking. Um, can you read for us that paragraph? Somewhere in the world, trees were growing, Natalie thought, as she walked down the hall of the house where she now lived. Her feet on the linoleum floor made a fat, flat sound, as one walking upon dead earth. And perhaps there were still flowers in the garden at home, and her father, glancing from his study window, perhaps her father thought, I wish Natalie were here. On either side of Natalie, as she walked toward her own room, were doors. Perhaps behind one door, a girl was studying. Behind another, a girl was crying. Behind a third, a girl was turning uneasily in her sleep. Behind a certain definite door downstairs, Anne and Vicky sat, laughing and speaking in loud voices, whatever they chose to say. Behind other doors, girls lifted their heads at Natalie's footsteps, turned, wondered, and went back into their work. I wish I were the only person in all the world, Natalie thought, with a poignant longing thinking then that perhaps she was after all. She reached her own door and wondered again, is this possibly my own door? Can it be that after so short a time, I can recognize one door among many and call it my own? 
Or is it only from here in the hall that it looks so extraordinary? After all, I can only go out one door from my room. It's coming in. That's so confusing. All right. What do you think? I don't know. Walking down the hallway and imagining the lives that the girls are having behind the doors reminded me a lot of um, Eleanor on her way to Hill House, sort of imagining herself into the lives. Yeah. But I don't know what she means by I can only go out one door. It's coming in. That's confusing. Okay. After all, I can only go out one door from my room. It's coming in. That is so confusing. I think coming into the other girls' rooms. Oh, because I read it as when I'm in the room, I can't see the other girls. And so I can only go out and there's no other option coming in. I could easily open any of these other doors yeah, yeah, and step yeah. into any of these other lives. Yes. This is, yes. This is exactly what I was saying. Okay, um, cool. It's pretty layered, I think, because mm-hmm. like she's – in every situation, she's both herself perceiving mm-hmm. and also the girls. So like yeah. that one where she's like – there's one girl studying, one girl crying, one girl turning uneasily in her sleep. I feel like she's that girl to yeah. herself. So she's like, again, this fragmentation between – and I and I want to use your language and noticing about seeing and being seeing. Mm-hmm. So like she's always being perceived and perceiving. Yeah. And then this, this question of I wish I were the only person in all the world – I don't – I think what she means by that is if I were the only person, I wouldn't have to think so much about this. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have to think so much about do they hear my footsteps and wonder if it's me. Yeah. Um, like it's not actually what she wants. It's, it's like a symptom of profound loneliness. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the further Shirley's books go in the career, the more the sort of impulse – to annihilation <laughs> exists. Um, I've talked many times about the sundial. Um, that is everybody outside the house literally does not exist anymore. And then when we get to We Have Always Lived in the Castle, the final novel, two girls living in isolation who have killed everyone around them. Um, so spoiler alert for yeah. those of you who haven't read Castle. <laughs> and then actually, we were going to kind of not spend a lot of time on this section, but Kelly and I had different interpretations, which I think is cool. So we'll mm-hmm. actually kind of pause for a minute on there. Natalie's in her room. She gets another visit from her best pal, Rosalind, who, again, wants to uh, partake in some mean, uh, mm-hmm. in this case, observation of other people. So Rosalind tries to get her to leave and to show her something. Listen, Nat, want to see something? What? Come on, then, Rosalind said urgently. Come on. Natalie rose and followed Rosalind through the door again and back down the hall. They reached a door halfway down toward the stairway. It belonged to someone Natalie knew vaguely. Perhaps the girl with bangs, whose name might have been Winnie Williams, or a girl they called Sandy. And Rosalind stopped in front of the door and said very softly, wait, I'll open it, and then you'll see. And then uh, moving on a little bit, they've gone, Rosalind said disappointed. You should have seen them. Who? Rosalind laughed and shrugged. Next time, she said, see you later. So... Kelly, how did you interpret the scene? So I was thinking about what Shirley said about people thinking this was a lesbian novel. I interpreted this as Rosalind has caught girls being gay. I don't mean it that crudely. She has caught some of the residents in a lesbian act um, and wants Natalie to come see too. And the thing that indicates that to me is they've gone. You should have seen them. Yeah. And Mackenzie, what did you think it was? I think it's a precursor to the stealing. Because, right, there's a page break. And then the next section is, it was that night that the talk of the theft was first openly Mm. in evidence. Yeah. So I originally was like, is it two girls stealing together? Uh Or, and then actually, as we reread it just now, I was like, is Rosalind the theft? And she's watching people freak out 
about losing, about realizing their stuff is lost and that somebody's stealing from all of them. Yes. And what do we know about the doors in this building? Oh, they all share the keys. Yes. that, And it, I guess that's an open secret because you can just slip in and out of people's rooms. Um, before we move on, I just want to point out two things in a paragraph that I thought were really great. Um, so before Rosalind shows up, Natalie's looking around her room. Um, she's thinking, what should I do? Should she read, dress, eat her mother's cookies, sleep? She was staring uncertainly at the window, in parentheses. She might jump out when there was a knock at the door. Oh, yeah. God, that, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's really important. <laughs> Before we talk about the suicide impulse, um, eat her mother's cookies. So I just thought this was a really small, brilliant thing. Um, in the last section we read, Natalie asked for a care package. Uh, and here we learned that she got it. So good for you, Mrs. W. And then also, if we think about words and pages as real estate, hmm. Mr. Waite gets all this real estate yeah. for writing a letter that took him five minutes. Yeah. And Mrs. Waite oh, goes to the grocery store, plans the recipe, bakes the cookies, probably wraps them really nicely, mm. goes to the post office, right? Oh. And that gets one line. Then again, me who's trying to like find the most important parts of each section doesn't even notice. Wow. Yeah. I, Shirley, wherever you are, God bless you. Yeah. Um, I hope you feel. So what do you think about this? Uh, maybe I'll write. Maybe I'll get changed. Maybe I'll jump out the window. Do you think she's seriously suicidal? My first impulse is no. Mm -hmm. it, it struck me as like you go back to your room and you kind of, you know, you have to study, mm -hmm. but you don't want to. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of like thinking and you're like, huh. what if I just killed myself? Just like almost like a, like a self joke. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but I think because we know what we know about Natalie. And, and because she's about to have this conversation with Arthur. Yeah. That we actually must take yeah. it seriously. Yeah. Um, even if it's just, even, and then even if it is a, a joke she's telling herself, mm -hmm. that joke is not coincidental or mm. accidental. Yeah. I mean, to me, this smacks a little bit of, I mean, you used to live in New York. Um, what do you think as the subway is pulling in? Should I jump? Like, do you, do you think that like ever just for a second? Not as like, not as like a genuine like, yeah. suicidal like, ideation. It's but more like, like, what would happen if I just... Yeah, it's, it's like an intrusive thought. Like when yeah. you're driving and you're like, yeah, I could just do this. It's or like, when you're up high, I could just jump. Yeah, I just think it's the the kind of tenuousness of having a body mm -hmm. and um, a subjectivity. Yeah. And the fact that all around you are these opportunities to lose those things. And like the awareness that all that's standing between you and that is is a single moment. And how easily it could happen. Yeah. Um, and as we see, as we go on, Natalie has death on the brain, uh, but we're not there yet. First, we have to talk about stealing. I think this is actually super interesting and super cool. Okay. And I'm like really excited to talk about it, especially like the last part that we're going to get to next time. Uh -huh. And it's also like, we can talk about it, but it's like one of the like, not quite hauntings, but it feels kind yeah. of yeah. spectral. Yeah. Um, what a violation. Yeah. So Kelly, can you read for us uh, this first section discussing the theft up into they all spoke directly to her? It was that night that the talk of the theft was first openly in evidence. In the basement room where the girls played bridge, where there was a stone floor and one dismal ashtray and a broken couch, and where Natalie sat cautiously in a corner, hoping that someone would notice her and comment, perhaps, on her professional manner of smoking, the girls gathered noisily, the two or three who were always heard news before anyone else, raising their voices and insisting. Honestly, Peggy Spencer said honestly. <laughs> I wouldn't have said a word unless I knew. 
They are really going to search everybody. Me, said Natalie, raising her voice for the first time in that room. Honestly, Peggy Spencer said, addressing herself to the first time to Natalie across the room. See, there's been so much stuff missing. Natalie did not know. Because she did not, had not heard, she found that all at once everyone was talking to her as though they knew her. Even though one girl did persistently call her Helen, and another thought that she lived on the fourth floor, it was here a comfort of sorts to Natalie to know that she had not been so universally absorbed as she thought. They all spoke directly to her. What is she doing? She <laughs> is becoming part of the blob, the amoeba, as you mentioned in the hazing episode. Um, nothing is going to bring people together like thinking that there's a, you know, a, a thief in their midst. And so she speaks up and she says, well, I didn't know. And then everybody starts talking to her and they have never spoken to her before. I know, but why would she go, they're really going to search everybody. And Natalie goes, you're going to search me? Like she seems so guilty. Well, so I, when I was reading this section, I was thinking about um, our friend, the detective has disappeared. And so it would be very, very surely for Natalie to actually be the thief and be doing it in a dissociative state, um, which is something that she actually explicitly thinks later on. I don't know. I read this more as like, wow, I'm part of the group, even though the whole group is getting robbed. Yeah. Do you think that she's actually comforted to know that she has not been so universally observed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's not too keen to be under the microscope with these girls. So Peggy Spencer goes on. She goes, it's been going on for ages, Peggy Spencer said. Everyone's been missing things for about a month and no one said anything because she hesitated, searching for a reason why no one had said anything. Anyway, she went on, it finally got so bad that old Nick heard about it. And then, of course, when she started asking questions, Peggy shrugged. Why then, she said, it turned out that nearly everyone had lost something or other. I don't think, she added thoughtfully, turning her red head around to look at everyone in the room, I don't really think that all those things were really stolen. So what's Peggy implying here? People just lose stuff and they're like, oh my God, I've been robbed. Yeah, and also that if you were the thief, you would come up with something to steal that had been stolen from you, right? To be like, I'm part of the, the victims. Yeah, a smart thief steals from himself. That doesn't mean anything, but it sounds smart. <laughs> Kelly... <laughs> Remind us, because Peggy Spencer, um, who I, I don't know, I just think she's funny. Like, I just love whenever she shows up. She's a, a lot of italics mm -hmm. and a lot of ellipses. Can yes. you remind us what that means in terms of Shirley's kind of style? So whenever somebody's speaking in italics, Shirley's making fun of them. And ellipses are a little bit harder to pin down. When people think in ellipses, it's usually because what they're about to think is not appropriate to the 1950s but i think peggy spencer is just putting in the ellipses because um to put it delicately she's talking out of her ass yes um she wants them to fill in the gaps like well you know we don't know for sure that there's a thief but dot 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 very nice as natalie sits and smokes professionally yeah can you read that whole paragraph for us yes Natalie, smoking professionally, was checking desperately over her belongings. If she had lost any clothes or jewelry, she would hardly have known it, since she had worn the same sweater and skirt for a week. And except for the formality of hanging her jacket on the hook just inside her closet door, had not opened her closet since she took out the skirt she was now wearing, but the persistent thoughts rode her mind side by side. First, it would not look well if she had not lost anything. And second, was she not an obvious thief? She felt her cheek reddening and turned her head down to watch her foot scuffing out the cigarette. If I had stolen anything, she thought, and had she perhaps not, 
she was suddenly aware of the excitement of going silently into someone's room, looking smilingly over someone else's possessions, reading letters, scrutinizing pictures, fondling jewelry, discarding whatever did not meet her fancy, and then, the most dangerous part, up until this moment her carefully planned excuses would let her off, slipping the roll of bills into her pocket, stuffing the book into the front of her sweater, flinging the real lace over her arm as though it belonged to her, and coming softly out of someone else's room, closing the door gently, walking boldly down the hall, counting over her new dear ownings behind the tightly locked door of her own room, and she thought that all of them were looking at her, unexpectedly quiet, all thinking at once. Why, it was that girl, of course. I remember now. I saw her coming out of my room. I always said she was ellipsis. What do you think? The thing that popped out to me first is um, another really sly detail that tells us a lot. Natalie has been wearing the same clothes for weeks, um, and that happens too in the bell jar. Um, the bell jar had not yet been published at this point, but um, Shirley and, and Sylvia Plath are very much up a piece. Um, in the bell jar, Esther Greenwood wears the same thing every day while she's having her breakdown. So there's something here about the slipperiness of memory. It's kind of like when you're at the airport and you're like, do I have a gun and I just forgot? Do you think about that? Um, no, but I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, to be very clear, I do not own a gun. And if I did, which I don't, I certainly would not bring it to the airport. But Natalie sort of doesn't trust herself. And, I, and so I think what we're being signaled to think with the letters to herself and the losing time is that Natalie is losing her grasp on reality, which, um, of course she is. And I was thinking of like, the pleasure it could bring. Mm -hmm. She was suddenly aware of the excitement of going silently into someone's room. Yeah. So not only, yeah. So not only like she doesn't know her own memories, but mm. she's act actively reimagining false memories and yeah. like feeling them in her body. What do you think of her smoking? That really struck me. She is so pretentious. She's smoking professionally. I know. Um, <laughs> Presumably that means she's smoking like her father and uncle and Arthur Langdon smoke. But it occurs to me that she's doing it in the wrong environment, right? So if she's smoking professionally and wants to be, you know, like a serious, intellectual, impressive person, she should be doing that in front of Arthur Langdon, not these girls. Yeah. Um, so she she's almost like uh, the how do you do fellow kids meme. Like she's trying to imitate people, but you can't quite match the behavior to the crowd. Yeah. Do you think that she is the thief? No. Why do you think that? I just don't. I don't have a, a, a deep take on that. I just don't think it's her. Um, so my follow-up question is, what do you think the purpose of the stealing is doing narratively? If Shirley wants us to not think Natalie's doing it, is it just to show that Natalie so easily can slip into other people's actions and memories and recreate these false moments for herself? Or is it something bigger? I'm sure it's probably something bigger. Um, I think I would have to get to the end to sort of see exactly where it fits. Yeah. But um, one thing that we would have talked about today, if I have read the last pages, sorry, um, is that there's a short story of Shirley's that is very much a precursor to this. Um, it appears in Let Me Tell You, a reading from the book of Jackson. No, um, the story is called Family Treasures. I don't think it was ever published before like 2016 because the stuff in here is generally new, but um, the character's name is Anne Wade. So clear call out to Natalie um, and who goes into people's rooms and starts stealing stuff. And if I remember correctly, um, that character does pretend to have been stolen from um, specifically so the others don't suspect her. So this is clearly something that was on Shirley's mind. I think Shirley's also clearly interested in uh, girlhood, mm -hmm. both 
satirically, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of the way girls act when they're together. But also, like, I feel like shoplifting especially is often seen as, like, a feminine predilection. Really? Yeah. Like, little shoplifting. Are you a shoplifter? No. Did we have this discussion on the, a previous episode? No. The only time I've ever stolen anything is, like, when I got to the car and I was like, I'm not going back in. But I think, like, that's often something young women do or mm -hmm. or it's been kind of positioned that way. Yeah. And so I just think that's interesting that there's this kind of small – it's not violence. The small, petty violation. Crime. Yeah, yeah, violation that is about being unseen yeah and kind of penetrating all of these so-called private uh, spaces yeah. and we'll see later there's a theory that a man is coming in and doing it but there's something about that all these girls are together and there's a thief and there's a sense of paranoia but also bonding because they've all yeah. they've all experienced it the thing with the keys like there's something about women living together that yeah. i think shirley's trying to get at it's one thing if somebody comes up to you and says, give me all your money. It's another if they come in when you're not there. And it's even worse if they steal from you and you don't notice that anything was taken. And even after you know a thief is coming, you still can't quite tell. Did I just lose the sweater or has it been taken? Yeah. Did did I leave the book at the library or did, was someone in here in my stuff seeing all my things? Like, I think it's this weird, yeah. This, it's so it's, scary. Yeah, it's like a very personal crime. And the stuff they steal. Somebody, yes, is missing money, but another girl is missing her shoes. One is missing her slip. Um, and they even say, what would you do with somebody else's shoes? Which, of course, is a metaphor. Who would you be if you were somebody else? But I'm thinking back to what Vicky and Anne, who obviously are now major suspects, were talking about, like, you can get to know people by breaking into their room when they're not there. Yeah. So... We see Peggy kind of focus on Natalie for a bit um, as Natalie is kind of having these thoughts. Um, have you lost anything? Peggy Spencer asked Natalie directly. Uh. In the small brief silence, Natalie said, thinking, only some change that I left on my dresser. I put it there when I came in, and then I went to take a shower, and when I came back, it was gone. All the faces were turned to her now. I didn't want to say anything, she explained, because then I didn't know that anything else was missing, and I didn't want to make any trouble for anyone. That's the way we all felt, someone said approvingly. And yet, Peggy Spencer said earnestly, if no one ever said anything, whoever it is would just be getting away with all with it all the time. I can't speak through the tag. Yeah. That's true, Natalie said. I mean, now that I know about it, I feel differently about it. Why am I talking, she wondered in shame. Who am I convicting? Whose soul am I selling? What murder am I helping to commit? Why am I here, she thought sadly, pretending that someone else has stolen from me. Really interesting yeah. kind of final moment yeah. here where as soon as Natalie is accepted by the group for yeah. the first time, she suddenly is thinking about the outsider. Yeah, I'm throwing somebody under the bus. Yeah. And she couches it again in the terms of the murder. Whose murder am I helping to commit? Um, which again, when our friend the detective was with us, she had committed a murder in her head. And of course, the thing underpinning all this, have you lost anything? Um, that's what Peggy asks her. And then she thinks, why am I pretending something's been stolen from me? But of course it has. Mm. Um, so once again, we're getting at the rape. Very interesting. The the thieving thing is very interesting. I keep changing my mind about what I think about it, which is fun. What do you currently think? I think that nothing, that there is no thief, that they've okay. all lost everything. It's like, you know, the cult mentality of. Yeah. Which is kind of lottery-ish. Yeah. Right. It has to be one of us. Who is it going to be? Yeah. Um, who are we going to 
throw under the bus, metaphorically burn at the stake. Um, and it's also kind of Agatha Christie, right? Somebody in this room is a thief. Yeah. And the doors are locked, so it has to be one of us. And the way that we tend to narrativize small happenings that are actually really mundane into yeah. someone amongst us is, has betrayed us. So next we get to kind of our big scene of the episode mm -hmm. that I also think is really interesting and actually really changes the way I think about Arthur Langdon. Um, or not what I think about him as a character, but just like makes me wonder about him a little bit more. Kelly, can you read us that first paragraph as Natalie is kind of preparing to go see Mr. Langdon? After the special trip Natalie had made back to her room to freshen her lipstick and comb her hair, it seemed almost callous of Arthur Langdon not to turn and smile when she stood timidly in the doorway of his office, not daring to knock for fear he had already seen her, not daring to enter for fear he had not already seen her. She thought of trying a slight cough or of saying softly, Mr. Langdon, or of going away a step and walking heavily up to the door again. But all these devices were, of course, only endless vicious cycles around the central point, which was that for some reason, Mr. Almighty Langdon thought he need not, if he chose not, notice Miss Natalie wait and really thought she could he could keep her waiting uncertainly endlessly in the doorway to his office. As she was wondering then if a sort of dignified march back down the stairs might not prove that she was something more than this, he looked up at her, blankly for a minute, as one who thinks deeply, and then recognized her with a nod of companionship that said she was to enter but not speak. She moved respectfully into the room, thinking that she was the kind of woman who knows when to keep quiet, and sat docilely in the chair beside the desk, her hands folded, and her eyes discreetly turned away from him to show that she was not in the least interested in what he was doing. She could see, however, from the corner of her eyes that he looked tired as he bent his head over the papers on the desk. He'd been fighting with Elizabeth, she thought with new knowledge, and hoped he would notice her quiet sympathy. And after this huge prelude, Natalie going to her room, she, like freshening up her looks, this whole kind of song and dance of waiting by the door. Mm -hmm. What does Mr. Almighty Langdon say to Natalie? <sighs> I wish I were an insurance salesman. What do you think? Uh, my note there was me too. <laughs> um, I wish that you were an insurance salesman, Arthur, but I mean, this is very common in academia. Like how easily I could just not be doing this. Yes. And honestly, I often, I'm like, you guys have never worked in corporate. Like when people say that, I'm mm. like, I like, I wish I had a corporate job. I'm like, mm. no, you don't. Cause then you would be doing it. Yeah. But also she's interrupted him in the middle of grading, yeah. which is when we all wish we were doing something else. Yes. That's very true. We also see the way that she is kind of drawing on her closeness with Elizabeth. He's been fighting with Elizabeth, she thought, with new knowledge and hoping he would notice her quiet sympathy. Mm -hmm. So the kind of intoxication that comes when you know something about a figure who has always been at arm's length and suddenly you're closer and the way mm -hmm. that that can be really um, alluring. And she thinks of herself as a woman here. Yeah. She was the type of woman who sat quietly in a chair, which again is the sort of film noir narration that we see at the beginning when Natalie is thinking about the detective. I did not have hot professors. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry to the English department at St. Michael's College, but like, I didn't even have one that was like, close to hot. I had professors that like, certainly could be considered attractive by some people. Yeah. I just... I do not have a teacher kink. Like I, I don't, sorry. So um, my mother's going to listen to this. Sorry, mom. Love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, that was actually a huge culture shock when I 
when I transitioned into like huge public universities for grad school. So for my master's and for my PhD, you would come to campus and there'd be professors that you would get warned about, especially oh, at my master's institution, um, including one who had married a grad student, which is really, yeah, which is really common and, and is used to be even more common. This shit has not gone away. And so that was really interesting to me because I was a theater major as well as an English major in my undergrad. And so um, you would spend late nights with men in the theater, like mm -hmm. especially like our um, our set and lighting person, um, like, you know, you'd be in the in the workshop till like 11 at night. It's mm -hmm. quiet. It's dark, whatever. Yeah. And there was not like a whiff of it. Like it wouldn't even occur to us to have thought that like it just wasn't that kind of place. Uh -huh. And so that made that culture shock even crazier when I went to my second university uh, and there were three people that they were like, do not be alone in a room with them. Yikes. Yeah. Anyway. Stop hiring creeps. That's, Stop hiring that's our creeps. hot take. <laughs> that should be question number one when you go for a job talk. Hello. Are you a creep? And also punish creeps. Yeah. All right. After some light editing, we're back. Um, so Arthur says, I wish I were an insurance salesman. It's just so boring to me. Like I just, mm. not like be, not being an insurance salesman, but him saying this, I like rolled yeah. my eyes. So yeah. Like, well, so she's got, I mean, there's this kind of almost kind of theatrical comical thing with like Natalie, like sticking her head in and out of the door. Like, should I go away and then come back really loud? So he knows for sure. And then he looks up and he's just like totally not thinking about her. So he says this and he goes, well, Natalie, she smiled and the moment became unexpectedly one of excruciating embarrassment. Natalie heard the back of her mind gibbering obscenities and thought for a mad moment that she might be saying them aloud and not realizing. Shit, shit, shit. <laughs> Perhaps she thought I am undressing or in the bathroom or looking at myself in the mirror and only pretending that I am here alone with Arthur Langdon. Perhaps I am here with Arthur Langdon and pretending that I am dressing and talking really to myself. Perhaps I will say something frightful and never know whether I have really said it or not. Because, of course, he would pretend I never said it, but he would always remember. A thousand years from now, Arthur Langdon telling Elizabeth for the hundredth time about the girl, Natalie Helen Joan, who had said the shocking thing to him. And Natalie laughed suddenly, bringing herself immediately back to the present in Arthur Langdon's office, where she certainly was at that moment. And he was saying curiously, what were you thinking about? I was thinking about when I would be dead, Natalie said. So do you think she's really thinking about when she's going to be dead and not when she's going to die, when she's going to be dead? Um, I have two interpretations. Yeah. One is that she was always thinking about when she would be dead. Mm -hmm. The other is the scene that she's imagining where Arthur and Elizabeth, she says a thousand years from now, mm -hmm. but you know, they're both elderly mm -hmm. and he's like obsessed with talking about all the young women who were obsessed with him and the scandalous things they would say in his office. Yeah. And that, but in that version of the future, she uh -huh. is gone because she is dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's either, it's troubling either way, but yeah. one is like, she's imagining a specific future that she is not a part of. Uh -huh. And the other is that because she's so fragmented, like we've been talking about, she's always thinking that. And also there's the, you know, like, Oh my God, I did something embarrassing. I bet people are going to be thinking about it forever. Yeah. And the reality is that they're not. Although there are people that everybody hates. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Those people don't usually. Do you think? <laughs> you know, no. 
Is that just something comforting we tell ourselves? There's an, my all-time favorite Onion articles. I have two. One is um, crack team of research scientists assembled to determine what the fuck your problem is. And then the one that's relevant now is piece of shit who everyone hates convinces himself it's all in his head. <laughs> my favorite one is there's a picture of a man with like comically wide leg pants, like uh, like balloon pants. <laughs> And the it's um man thinks everyone hates his wide leg pants, but it really is the only thing his coworkers like about him. <laughs> we can link those. Okay, so thanks long for, live the onion. Thanks for some levity as we're about to talk about death with our professor. Yes. Um. So, as his student, his eighteen year old student who's newly away from home for the first time, says this like pretty concerning thing. Yeah. It, to be clear, like in real life, you would have to report this. What does our gallant uh, Arthur Langdon say? Dead? Are we going to die, you and I? And what does Natalie say? I only wonder about how Natalie said soberly. Unlike most of the things she found herself saying to Arthur Langdon, this was true. I keep thinking that, of course, it's got to happen, and even to me. But then I always think that somehow and someday this interesting person of mine will, ellipsis. She searched for a word. Subside, she said finally. I mean, I will be very suddenly aware of an ending, and that there is not going to be any more for me, and that I'm not going to be with myself any longer. And all of that's all right, she said, going on quickly as he opened his mouth to speak. I'm only afraid of being caught unaware, of that terrible fast panic that comes when you're very, very frightened, and of being afraid when it happens. So then, of course, I always think I'll kill myself before it can happen. And again, a super concerning speech mm -hmm. to which Arthur Langdon says, you have a very original mind. So I want to push a little bit on the idea of how concerning this is. Okay. Knowing what we know about Natalie, knowing the context that this conversation happens in, yes, red flags flying up left and right. But isn't this something that everybody thinks about at some point? I think everybody thinks about death. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is so lonely and so troubled that they're saying it in their English professor's office hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be very clear that that's not okay. But like, I remember thinking when I was like 16, no matter what I do, I'm going to die. Like there's literally nothing you could do. So maybe you could just kill yourself. So then at least you're not wondering anymore. I think her not knowing where she is, like, I think that is the more concerning part of this mm -hmm. moment for the reader. Like, I think her being like, am I actually here or am I getting undressed? Like, mm -hmm. I think it's gone past the point of relatability in terms yeah. of the way the mind thinks at this point. She's genuinely troubled and not, she needs help. Yeah. I do. Th and I think her speech here about killing herself is actually to impress Arthur with like the depth of her thinking. It it's her trying to be like, I think about death. I'm fucking Existential. Yeah. yeah. Or is it? A cry for help. That's not how I read it because yeah. this moment has been so imagined by her yeah. to such a depth that I think she's been, she's like, what's going to impress Arthur? Mm -hmm. Thinking about death yeah. and being a little edgy about thinking about killing myself. Yeah. So this is emo, Natalie. But I think it's really interesting and really poignant how Natalie defines death. Oh, yeah. That I'm not going to be with myself any longer. Oh, that's actually not the part I thought you were going to say. Um, what did you think? I, was I thought you were going to this word subside. Yeah, I think is like actually like like scrumptious. Like it's yeah. it's such a like juicy word to use. Yeah. Have you seen that quote? It's like a Tumblr quote, or I saw it on Tumblr. I'm sure it's an actual quote. 
the it's like I hope death is like falling asleep on the couch and somebody carries you to your room but you can still hear the party from downstairs mm. like I think that's really beautiful and like a very like that's how I like to think about death yeah and so this notion of subsiding instead of destruction not with a bang but with a whimper yeah like it's really I don't know again like like just as like a a reader like subside is such a wonderful and that's not devastating how, word that's not how I want to go Really? Yeah, I want to go in like something that makes the news. <laughs> <laughs> so tomorrow I get hit by a bus. Please tell everyone she went the way she wanted to go. <laughs> it's genuinely so funny. Rabid raccoon attacks a local woman. <laughs> She's thrilled. <laughs> um. So again, to your point, like she does not have an original mind. Like I think there's yeah. part of it, again, like you're saying that I'm not going to be with myself. Yeah. Um, but then she thinks, oh man, do I have the original mind? Like, I am know. I the smartest person who has ever existed? Even I haven't thought that. <laughs> <laughs> am I actually the geniusest genius that's ever lived? Um, and interestingly, what does she call Arthur Langdon in her head? Almighty Langdon. Yes, but here she says, oh, the fool. Oh. Remember Eleanor? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and the fool is also a tarot card. For youth, right? I don't know what it means. I, I just think know that it exists. I think it's youth and new beginnings. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but so, again, I, just want, I want to linger on this a little bit. Arthur says, you have a very original mind, Natalie. And she goes, that's what I mean. Can you imagine having a mind like mine and losing it when you die? What is, what, what, how does he transition after she's like, I'm a genius. Can you imagine having to lose that? He waved his hand at the papers on his desk. There are almost 200 papers there. I have to read every one of them and I always watch for yours. Is this true? Probably not. Yeah, I don't think so either. And also 200 papers. I mean, academia is hard. It is not that hard. I guess here's my question. Unless he is like really, really procrastinated his grading. Yeah. You're not grading 200 papers. Is he building his cult of personality here? Like, is he, does he, is he like, I, every young girl that comes in here, I want her to be obsessed with me. So that's mm -hmm. this conversation. Yeah. Or it's the script. Or is it, is it that as well as this student has befriended my wife? Like, mm -hmm. is that part of the equation at all? No, I don't think he cares about that part. Really? I think it's very much like I'm a predator and I know that the way to ensnare these girls is to make them feel special. So he says, I always watch for your work. And then she, again, is Joan, Helen, Anne in a parenthetical. Yeah, so if, she's, she's slightly wise to yeah, it. Yeah, am I, am I, is this all bullshit? Am I forgettable? Yeah. And she says, I find your criticisms very helpful. She said demurely, my father discusses my work with me very much as you do. She thought of her father with sudden sadness. He, he was so far away and so much without her. And here she was speaking to a stranger. Does your father think your work shows talent? My father does not praise anyone. Except himself. Do you plan to be a writer? It feels kind of jilted, this conversation, right? Mm. This kind of movement from an original mind to I watch for your papers to her father, and then my father does not praise anyone. Mm. Is his question, do you plan to be a writer, a form of praise that she's been singled out as? No, I think it's just the next line in the script. Yeah. Most girls at 18 want to be told that they should be a writer. Especially if they're in his class and they're coming to his office hours. Yeah, um, I think that's right. 
And yeah, and, and I, I think it's really smart of Shirley to put the Joan, Helen, Anne thing in because it shows, as I said earlier, that Natalie is not totally oblivious to this. She slightly is aware that she's being had, but she's going to go ahead anyway. Actually, my follow-up is, so Anne being the last name mm. as the man, as the woman about to get him, is she thinking, I am joining the production line? And is that something she wants? Like, is that exciting for her to be like, he is making me the next Anne. I just have to wait till my senior year. I don't know if Natalie's feelings for Arthur Langdon are consciously sexual. Yeah. I know that sounds like not correct. I think that Natalie thinks about Arthur Langdon the way that Eleanor thinks about like, you know, the handsome smuggler that she's going to meet. Yeah. Like she's very much into this idea of, and then he'll carry me away. But like she doesn't necessarily think about, and then I'll have to marry this guy, and then I'll have to actually have sex with him. And like, so she she yes, she's beautifying herself for this, but I don't know. It, it's it's the daddy thing at work, and I I, I don't yeah. think that she, I don't know that she wants to be the next Elizabeth or thinks that that's actually a possibility for her. I think that she just wants something to fill, and I'm gonna say it this way: the daddy hole. And I think also (laughs) to bring it back to something you said earlier that I thought was smart, it's this like mimicking of other girls at the university. Like Mm -hmm. she both wants to be part of the crowd and away from the crowd. Mm -hmm. And this avenue actually allows her both, right? Yeah. She's obsessed with Arthur, like all the other girls, but also is special because he thinks that she can be a writer. And even though she's conscious of Mm -hmm. both things happening. Yeah. Um, Kelly, can you read what Natalie thinks when he asks her do you plan to be a writer? A what? Natalie thought. A writer, a plumber, a doctor, a merchant, a chief. The best laid plans of a writer the way I might plan to be a corpse. A writer, she repeated, as though she had never heard the word before. He was staring at her with his mouth half open. She must have delayed her idiotic answer beyond any reasonable time for thought. Do you plan to be a writer? He asked again. He did mean it then. Look, Natalie said, why does everyone say they're going to be writers when they're not? I mean, why do you and my father and everybody say to be a writer as though it were something different, not like anything else? Is there something special about writing? Thoughts. Is there? I want to say yes. I'm trying to think critically about that response. So, I mean, I think that this is very clearly Shirley, right? This is Shirley thinking about, you know, well, is there anything particularly noble about this profession? You know what? I'm going to say no. But I'm very jaded. I don't know. I I really am kind of, I, I am struck by this. I don't know how to think about it. I do think, yes. I think ultimately art is an act of sharing, hmm. even if it is often an egocentric sharing. And so I think that alone is special. And it's interesting, Arthur Langdon's response to this. Is there something special about writers? It's because writing itself, he began hesitating, and then, I suppose it's because writing, well, it's something important, I suppose. So it has never occurred to him that there is not something special about writing. And now that she has sort of inadvertently forced him to reckon with his life, he's like, well, it's 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 because being a writer is important. And then when she goes, well, then what am I going to write? That, I think, is really telling her being, like, it is the identity of the writer and not the act of writing that intrigues her. And, again, he doesn't really have a satisfactory 
answer. He goes, well, he said, he looked at her and then irritably at the papers on his desk, stories, he said, poems, articles, novels, plays, anything, well, creative. And then Natalie goes, but why is it so important, this creating? So I think, again, like, this feels very surely. Yeah. And who is coming out on top in this conversation? Natalie. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's interesting, last week we talked about her sort of trying to show up the music professor. You played a double sharp and it's actually a sharp and him saying, ah, ha, ha, ha. And, but here she is genuinely stumped Arthur Langdon, but there's no audience. And I think he's genuinely seeking his help, right? She Mm. wants to understand what is this thing that I've dedicated my waking thoughts to? Like, what is this thing that I want and why do I want it? He dismisses it as metaphysical nonsense. Questioning one's own soul is not something at which I am particularly good at any time. And certainly it is not a subject which ought to be indulged in broad daylight. Something creepingly sexual about that comment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But you can tell also he's frustrated. He's annoyed. He like, yeah, just get the fuck out. I'm trying to grade. Yeah. And I think would you concur with this? Like when you're interrupted in the middle of greeting papers, that is when you like least want to have a metaphysical conversation. Yeah. It was precisely as Natalie's father would have rebuked her. She sat back in her chair and thought, I will never ask him this again. And then thought, what a silly person I am. And now he does think I am a fool. Tell me, he said, leaning forward, you were giving me your ideas about death. So again, 18-year-olds coming to terms with their own mortality. Mm-hmm. This is the shit he can deal with. This is the shit that he can sound smart about, that he yeah. can kind of, again, like you said, this is the script he knows. Yeah. This, what Natalie was asking, was not the script. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about this scene in too much depth, but there's a little sort of vignette of Natalie talking to Vicky and Anne. And Vicky and Anne are reminiscing uh, and what are they reminiscing about? The good old days when the people older than them could bully people and they could enjoy it. Yeah. And the stuff that they did, they sent a guy a telegram supposedly from his girlfriend telling him not to come to a dance. They sent invitations to faculties, inviting them to a party. On the bottom of the invitation, it said in bank letters, your wife is not invited. So the stuff that they do is, is that they laugh off is pretty vicious. I'm very gendered. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's almost like they're the witches in Macbeth where they're breaking up the couples, right? Don't come because your girlfriend doesn't want you anymore. Your wife can't come to this party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Vicky and Anne, I've got your number. I know you're thieves. Do you think it's them? No. Why not? I just don't think it's them. Well, I don't like them, so. But also, (laughs) we can see that Natalie is spending time with them. Yeah, that's true. And it's kind of not acknowledged how this is happening or who's coming to who, but yeah. they're ending up in rooms together. Sort of floating conversation. Next, we get another email from email. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> God, this is what boomers think is happening. Um, <laughs> we get another a letter from Mr. Wave. Kelly, can you read uh, the first two paragraphs of that letter? Natalie, my dear. Needless to say, your letters amuse and delight me, although, as I have often told you, how humorless I sound. Your style leaves much to be desired. How very often, my dear Natalie, have we, you and I, spent our morning hours puzzling out the intricate filigree of the subordinate clause. And yet I find in your last letter but one the following. 
Please forgive my quoting you, my dear. It is the only way you know to improve you. I have a notion you would hardly read a bare invented example. I like college very much, but I'm still a little confused. I don't think I'll ever learn French. I like philosophy, though. Is there any chance of your coming down soon? Ignoring the sense of the quotation, except to mention in passing that it is not possible to learn French, as I believe someone else has said, one is either is or is not born with the kind of personality to which French is a mother tongue. Let me only say that two self-evident remarks connected with but do not constitute an English style, nor do a series of short sentences unless they are building into something very clear and definite, which in your case seems to be, with love to all, Natalie. A desirable sentiment, and one your mother could hardly do without, but surely not an adequate consummation. Almost, in fact, an anticlimax. Is it just the same old bullshit? Yes, but I think that there's something... I think up until now, he's just been a jerk. I think here he is, like, genuinely a bad person. Yeah. So, yeah, he's doing the really sort of jerky thing of essentially grading his daughter's writing. Is this what your feedback to your student sounds like? You can't speak French. <laughs> like, you'll never be able to do it. But just like the feedback he gives her is so pedantic and is so downputting. Um, he chooses not to address anything in her letter, but he says, oh, you know, you only used one subordinate clause. I thought we talked about this. Yeah. So he's ripping on her writing, but then it becomes sort of darkly funny to really sad. So he says, you know, you're building up to with all love, Natalie. And your mother really would have wanted to hear that. But that's not enough. Yeah. But also there's this, is there any chance of your coming down soon? Which he completely ignores. So and it's... so by putting it in the letter, he's saying like, I'm acknowledging that you said this. And I'm also acknowledging that we're not dealing with it. Yeah. We'll see later that actually it kind of flips where there comes a point where Natalie's dad is basically... Not begging, but uh -huh. like being like, I really would like you to come home. Uh -huh. And Natalie is kind of demurring. And so it's interesting to see this early moment of like, he's trying to preserve their power dynamic. Mm -hmm. That I am the teacher, you are the student, and you will never be good enough. As she's kind of starting to be ingratiated with this other teacher, despite seeing the flaws in both men. Like she understands that both men are kind of frauds, but still wants mm. them. He goes on, enough for your letter. You're presumably studying English composition and we may expect to see an improvement soon. Fuck you. Really bad. <laughs> your mother and I are better able to avoid one another without you and your brother cluttering up the house. I thought that was really sad. I thought, it, I don't know, just the way you put it made me laugh. I'm sorry. Your mother remarks nostalgically that the dinner table seems unusually deserted. Which, of course, is true, although it persuades me finally that your mother has, from the beginning, counted her children only by the places set at table. It has marked your growth from one chop to two with pride and appreciation. Soon her little girl will be quite grown up and able to manipulate her own knife and fork. You may, however, suppose that we miss you. So I think with the you may, however, suppose that we miss you, maybe that's a little bit of what he really feels leaking through. Maybe he can't help himself. But I, I like this idea of Mrs. Waite thinking of her kids as like, you know, my little pork chops. Yeah. But she's only thinking about them in terms of like what she needs to do for them. Like eventually she's going to be able to hold her own knife and I'll get a break. Or is that the only, again, we talked about the kitchen scene earlier, is that her only domain? Hmm. And so like the thing about the, the your mother is obsessed with your internal workings the kitchen and what she can produce there yeah. is the only thing that she has control of and the mm. only thing she can give her children. So like, yeah, being obsessed with it is actually an act of love. 
And you get the sense that if somebody asked Mrs. Waite, like, what's your daughter like? She would say, well, she can use her own knife. Yeah. So then he goes on to say, has your Mr. Langdon seen my piece in the last passionate review? If not, you may use its arguments as your own and confound him. Obediently, dad. So what academic crime is he encouraging here? Plagiarism. Yeah. But not only just plagiarism, plagiarize me. Which is a particular type of narcissism. And that'll be so dope. You'll you'll fucking get him. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. All right. And just one more thing I want to say about that before we move on to the last part. There's something in that that strikes me a little bit as like, you know, present my ideas to Arthur Langdon and see what he thinks about them. And also the um, assumption that she has no ideas that could confound him of her own. That's true, too. Yeah. So it's both putting Natalie down, but also kind of seeking academic approval. Yeah. Also, one thing that we haven't talked about too much. What do you think Mr. Langdon's students think? Mr. Langdon, Mr. Wade's students think of him? Um, I think he's like Arthur in 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's part of this desire for approval is that he is less attractive than perhaps he once was. Yeah. And so that one, that piece of power he held over his students, his charisma and his looks He's losing that, and what he's left with is the truth that he's not very bright, and he's not very original. And he's mean in his grading. Yeah. And your mother and I are better able to avoid one another without you and your brother cluttering up the house. I thought that was so incredibly sad, this idea that your kids are a buffer. So this last section that we'll think about today is, again, Natalie's kind of private journal. We've talked at length about Shirley's own journals to herself and the different voices that she assumes. It's a doozy, I think. I'm excited to see what you have to say. Let's look at it right from the beginning. Natalie's Journal, Middle October. I suppose you've been wondering for a long time, my darling Natalie, what I can find to be thinking about. I suppose you have even noticed Natalie seems so strange lately. She seems so withdrawn and distant and quiet. I wonder if Natalie's coming along all right or if there's something troubling her. Perhaps you have been thinking, dearest, that Natalie had something she wanted to say to you. Perhaps, you thought, Natalie is frightened, and perhaps she even thinks sometimes about a certain long-ago bad thing that she promised me never to think about again. Well, that's why I'm writing this now. I could tell my darling that you were worried about me. I could feel you being apprehensive, and I knew that when you were always thinking about was you and me. And I even knew that you thought I was worried about the terrible thing, but of course, I promise you this, I really do. I don't think about it at all, ever, because both of us know that it never really happened, did it? And it was some horrible dream that caught up with us both. We don't have to worry about things like that. You remember we decided we didn't have to worry. What do you think? So obviously, once again, the rape poking through. But I think it's not a coincidence that this comes on the heels of Mr. Waite's inane letter. Mm -hmm. This is the letter that Natalie wishes she could have received from her father. Mm. I think that when she's saying to herself, you know, essentially, I forgive you. I never think about it. It doesn't matter to me. That is what she wants to hear from her father. And of course, he doesn't think about it because he doesn't know. Or does he? Yeah. And we'll see as we move on that all of Mr. Waite's letters have this my title. Mm. So the, the one that we started with, Natalie, my child. This one we most recently read, Natalie, my dear. And then we see in the journal, my darling Natalie. So this kind yeah. of echoing of the paternal mm-hmm. figure. Yeah. Journals. If you're like if you're like a little kid writing a journal, mm-hmm. you usually talk to the journal, right? Yeah. You're like, dear diary, you know. Yeah. 
what does it mean that Natalie's journal is, she's writing to herself? Like, it's a self-letter. Like, is that normal, do you think? Or, like, I guess that's my question is, like, I feel like it's really weird, but am, um, I, am I just misjudging? No, I, I think that there's definitely developing a theme here of, as I said, sort of dissociation from the self. Yeah. Which is literally the topic of Shirley's next book, The Bird's Nest. Again, very Shirley. But it's also smacks to me of the 1950s understanding of what today we would call dissociative identity disorder. I think this is a uh, way that Shirley sort of indicates herself as being of her time. Also, um, as this letter goes on, she starts to think about what she calls psychoanalysis, what we would today call therapy. Yeah. Um, to the best of my recollection, except for the entirety of the bird's nest, which is all about therapy, um, this is the only time in Jackson where we see a character explicitly think about that. That's really interesting. So I, I guess my my point here is um, in this entry, I see the seeds of the bird's nest. Yeah. And then can you go into that next paragraph and think about what she identifies what she what she really is thinking about? No, what I've been thinking about is something entirely different. I've been thinking, and it is very, very hard to say this, so be patient with me, about the beautiful, wonderful, exciting things that are happening. That does not quite describe it. Look, let me say it like this. When I came here to college, I was all alone, and that bad thing had just happened, and I had no friends and no one to think about, and I was always frightened. Now all of a sudden, I find that I'm walking around in a world very full of other people, and because they are all frightened too, I can afford to be frightened. And then once I know I'm frightened, then I can go ahead and forget about it and start looking around at other things. And of course, now I know that it isn't important about other people, and only the people who don't dare be all alone need friends. I don't suppose I will need any friends or anything for the rest of my life, now that I am not frightened. I don't know. I don't get the oof from that. Really? I don't need any friends because I, for the rest of my life? I guess, I don't know. I just read this as sort of bluster. You think it's her just, I don't need them. You know, I, I don't need anybody because I got me. Yeah, isn't that sad? <laughs> Kelly's unimpressed. And then the, this next section is something kind of that we haven't talked about before. But of course, I think sometimes, thank heaven no one will ever read this, but you and me, my dear. Which is interesting because she knows that they have the key to her room. Hmm. Anyway. I didn't think about that. But of course, I think sometimes about being in love, which is something I hardly expect ever to happen to me. But I think I have just a slight idea from the way I feel about other things, what it would be like. I think, for instance, that no one can really love a person who is not superior in every way. For instance, I know from how I feel about people who are superior to me in some things, just exactly how I would feel about someone who was superior to me in everything, which, of course, would be the only kind of person I could really love. No! I wanted to tell my father about this, and I wanted to tell Arthur, too, but of course, it is not really possible to go up to some man and say that you could never really love any person who is not superior to you in everything, and let them see clearly that they are not that. So first of all, that is ice cold. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, Arthur would take it as a declaration of love, and she would have to be like, no, no. Yeah. I, I would, you know, I would love to love somebody. They'd have to be better than me in every single way. To be clear, I'm not talking about you. Is this a kind of, like, seeping in of misogyny? Like, is she thinking, like, mm. this is how my mother loves my father, and this is how Elizabeth loves Arthur? I think she's aware that these are not good marriages. Yeah. But, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I could only love somebody who was better than me in every single way. 
I don't know. I Does Natalie think that there's somebody who's better than her in every single way? Because uh, despite everything that's happened to her, she seems to think she's pretty great. Yeah. And also, every love story would then be one-sided, right? Yeah. I'm just thinking about the, the gif of Bart Simpson with the pots and pans going, I am so great. I am so <laughs> great. Um, so that's Natalie to herself. Let's get into the psychoanalysis bit. Kelly, mm-hmm. could you read us that paragraph? I wonder what I would say to a psychoanalyst. I wonder where people find words for all the funny things inside their heads. I keep turning around in circles and finding how well things fit together, but nothing's ever complete. I think if I could tell someone everything, every single thing inside my head, then I would be gone and not existing anymore. And I would sink away into that lovely nothing space where you don't have to worry anymore. And no one ever hears you or cares. And you can say anything, but of course you wouldn't be anymore at all. And you couldn't really do anything. So it wouldn't matter what you did. Again, this impulse to self-annihilation. And then again, my question about, and this also relates to her discussion with, Ar- with Arthur, is this what writing is, right? Like, ah. if is this the purpose of the journal? Is she's hoping someone reads it and is annihilated and isn't herself anymore. Wow. It's almost like she wants this to be somebody else's problem. Like if I just get it all down on paper and then Vicky and Anne come and read this, I can sort of foist it onto them. Yeah. And then like, if we think again, Natalie is purposely fragmenting herself, but she can never actually get rid of that final self because she's always writing to a self. Hmm. So it's like this kind of impossibility to actually do. Of course, I realized that the first thing to do if you wanted someone to tell you everything would be to make your minds go along together so that if, for instance, a psychoanalyst wanted me to tell him everything in my head, he would have to be very close to me so that our minds were running exactly together, coinciding. And what I told him would not be told, really, but only an echo of the way both our minds were going and would sort of cancel out. And there you see is what I mean by superior, because after all this, he would have to have enough left over after he had taken all my mind so that he could keep on thinking by himself after I was nothing. But of course, I don't believe anybody really exists like that and that all these people like Elizabeth who talk about going to a psychoanalyst don't want this at all. Or perhaps their minds are so little and move on such a small amount of energy or space that a psychoanalyst could use just a little bit of himself to capture them and have plenty of mind left over so as not to be absorbed in them at all particularly. And that, I suppose, is why these people find it so easy to get along with the idea of having their minds taken away from them, because their minds were never very useful to them in the first place. Although I do not have to worry about being modest here, it is certainly not necessary to point out to you that Elizabeth is not as wise as I am. Oh. What the fuck is wrong with her? So the, the thing that strikes me most here is there are things happening in Natalie's life that we are not seeing. Yeah. Um, Because she's telling us that, you know, Elizabeth talks all the time about going to her therapist, which again, red flags off the charts, but we didn't see that happening. Yeah. So we know that there are things in Natalie's life that we are not privy to. But this too strikes me as kind of Hill Housey. This idea that, you know, the mother, the house is going to either eat you or like suck you up, suck you in. And so there's this idea that by telling your thoughts to a psychoanalyst, who in this case, of course, would be male, um, you kind of get subsumed and eaten by them too. Yeah. This idea of the devouring father figure. Yeah. Don't eat your patients. In this, I think actually, like, I agree the first part was a little bit like, imagining someone else reading this Mm -hmm. this feels like a little bit deeper than that like Mm -hmm. she's actually thinking this yeah and then it ends with 
And Elizabeth isn't as smart as me anyway. Yeah. Um, I think the Hill House comparison is really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that Hill House takes place over such a short time frame and that this is spread out. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what do those gaps do? Like, uh-huh. Eleanor, we can see her deteriorating. And yeah. Natalie, we can see her deteriorating. But it's almost more suspenseful because we don't – like, we can see every step Eleanor takes down. Yeah. But Natalie, it's these sudden drops where we're like, mm, oh, yeah. gosh, what is happening? Yeah. And I think it's also because, like, Natalie has – somewhat of a normal life at this point yeah like and it would just be boring for us to sit through every single class you want to read that final paragraph of her secret journal to us yes i do i want somebody who will fight about it too suppose there's a person somewhere very near me right now who's thinking about me and who watches me and knows everything i think about and who is just waiting for me to recognize and no period and no um ellipsis no no pronoun waiting for me to recognize him her or them yeah, it just stops. Now, I have not read the rest of Hangs a Man. In fact, I didn't even do all the reading for today. I know enough about Hangs a Man to be on the lookout for Tony. I thought this was setting the stage for Tony. No, we've got a little bit. We have a huge Elizabeth and Arthur scene. Or no, sorry. We have a mini, we have a small Elizabeth and Arthur scene, and we have a huge Elizabeth and Arthur scene. And then we get Tony. I, I still think this might be Tony, sort of like lurk, lurking. In the oh, shadows. yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I just mean we have a little bit to wait okay. before we actually get there. Yeah. Um, on the page, at least. So, I yeah, I love this, this idea that, like, I can almost feel it. Somebody in the background is watching me all the time, knows what I'm thinking. Yeah. Abrupt cutoff. And again, for those of you who read um, – up to page 116 for today. Who are not me. I was really trying not to make that feel loaded. I'm really not upset at all. It's lovely to have a shorter episode. Um, Anyway, there's, uh, again, this accusation of a man, of a peeping Tom. So I think that's particularly resonant there too. This person watching me who knows everything I think about. And therefore also like this idea that someone already knows everything about you means you don't have to tell it and you don't Mm -hmm. have to explain this thing that happened to you and yeah. they can just know and, and and be there i just skipped ahead to look what was going to happen on the next pages i it, it was really important what the fire and stuff oh yeah yeah <laughs> sorry that's okay no 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 it'll be fun so all right uh let's get to our conclusion kelly who won this episode uh tony because you're thinking about about her i yeah yes but i i I don't know i don't want to give it to like tony directly because again we haven't met her yet but you know what i'm going to give it to tony slash thief slash this presence lurking in the background yeah you know who i'm gonna give it to natalie our girl natalie yeah mostly for the arthur langdon scene yeah she got his ass yeah (laughs) and also like again um i think you especially made me recognize this that she is hyper aware of everything that's happening Mm -hmm. and like still choosing to go to his office but she's not uh as naive as perhaps someone else would be Mm. and i do think that kind of um interrogation on writing of but is it important? Like, is it actually special? Mm. I think that was really poignant. Again, especially because it's surely speaking through Natalie as she's made a career of this writing. Mm-hmm. And then again, just like a slam dunk on academics. She is dunking on him. That is the perfect way to put it. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was really good. I think we probably have the same loser then. 
What's your loser? Arthur. Yeah, I think that's the natural. Just maybe Mr. Wait. Loser. But yeah, he does not get the better of that exchange and has to grade 200 papers. Yeah, sorry, pal. But you know, maybe he doesn't have to grade 200 papers. Maybe he's just saying that. Because remember in the beginning, Mr. Wait's like, I got to do this and this and this and this. Yeah. I think maybe I have graded 200 papers since I've been at UConn and I've been here for three years. Yeah, I guess that's about right. Stop lying, Arthur. Stop it. All right. Our pages for next time are 108 to 136. Sorry, it's a lot of reading because I didn't do it right. <laughs> Again, a very, very troublesome scene with our friends Arthur and Elizabeth and this Vicky and Anne. This is on fire. And I'm also going to give a trigger warning. We end right before another letter from Natalie's dad. And he does address the letter, my dear captive princess. So trigger mm. warning for having to put your eyes yeah, if on you've that. Had, if you've ever been kept in a tower, maybe next episode's not for you. I just mean trigger warning having to, to look at that from a father <laughs> to a daughter. All right. Well, uh, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Reading Shirley Jackson, the podcast. You can find us on the web at readingshirleyjackson.com, where you can get access to show notes and transcripts from both season one and season two, as well as contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions for what you'd like to hear on the podcast. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, the best way to do that is to tell a friend, or even better, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, since that really helps the algorithm notice us and recommend us to more people. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.